It's Distazapod. As I peer out my window, I see what was once a stream, now a roaring river. Endless rains, endless snows. And a little kitten batting around a extremely obnoxious and loud bell ball style toy that just makes a lot of racket. This is the setting in which I bring you to Stazapod today, my friends. Much to talk about. I'm moving from room to room, but this cat is following me with the ball, determined to interrupt this recording process. As outlined on Patreon, a couple interesting developments are going on. One, I finally had some time to go through all of my archives, uh, and in particular, my sort of paint sample boxes. So, um, prior to getting your sort of final product, a factory will often send you duplicates of the same figure, so you can check the paint deco, you can make sure the articulation works, etc., etc. This is the ninth year of Knights of the Slice, and so I have scores and scores of these boxes of just loose figures, parts, early paint samples, uh, deco revisions, things like that. And part of my goal for this year is to clean out my basement, get it refinished, have a proper recording studio and live streaming area, and, um, you know, obviously get, get back to doing more live streams, playing the Wheel of Nights, stuff like that, the fun stuff. Uh, and in order to do that, I got to get rid of a lot of product and a lot of stuff. So, momentarily, we're going to have the brand new Patreon-only store, which will be uh, for this year, for 2024. And one of the things that's going to be offered on there are these sort of lucky draws. It might be in a bag, might be in a box, I'm not quite sure yet. But you will get one figure, and you will get a ton of parts, as many parts loose as I can fit in these packages. And um, this will be a really excellent way to help me clear out some of these older samples. This will get you at least one complete figure. Uh, It might be a Frankenslice, might be an early paint sample, it might be something unique, might be a prototype, who knows, Uh, and a ton of parts, and then through you purchasing this lucky draw, uh, it will help me alleviate a lot of space issues that I'm having currently. In addition, the Secret Store is also going to have remix figures, so I'm going to take older styles of figures uh, and just remake them with different colors, different body parts, different cape colors. A good example is Neostar. I have a few Neostar heads. I really love that character. So that's going to be our signature remix figure, which you can pick up for a really cheap price and get a sort of new take on a older style character. In addition, I'm also going to start liquidating a great portion of my toy collection. And uh, I've been selling off bits and pieces of it throughout the years. But at this point, I need to increase the velocity of this because I, I got this beautiful recording studio in my mind and I need to, I need to see it manifested. So I'm going to start piece by piece, slowly giving my toy collection away. And what you may find when you make a store purchase is a free figure thrown in. And uh, the more you spend, the more free figures I'm going to put in people's boxes. And... Uh, That's how I'm going to go about it. So with these new initiatives, obviously the beneficiary is going to be my patrons and my customers. Um, But you're also doing quite a service in helping me out. So these are new things to look forward to for 2024. 
And also, yes, we have Cybug launching soon. I have a nice intro video that will give you background on this character. That will be made available in a short time as well. And then we are inching ever so close to action figure of the millennia 2024's inaugural two-pack shipping out it's going to start uh the bulk of it on february 2nd but i'm going to start getting uh full year enrollees packages bundled up and uh put out there there will be a bigger cybug drop towards the end of the month that will tie into the fulfillment for action figure of the millennia uh for january february but all in all this is all really exciting stuff, and we got so much planned this year. Um, baby, how about I give you a little Cray update? It's been a while since we talked about that. My initial hope of starting the Cray tooling prior to Chinese New Year, which fluctuates every year. Sometimes it's in January, sometimes it's in February. This year it's running a bit late. I, th I believe it's starting the first week of February. Um, I was hoping to begin the tooling process prior to Chinese New Year break, and uh, wire all the money I owe and have at least a good idea of the order I was going to be placing. Uh, that unfortunately did not happen. We got a, a, a ton of spinning plates going on here. But generally, Cray is 99% done. He is sculpted. I have done test prints thanks to Zstar Bren. And uh, overall, I'm incredibly happy with how it's turned out. We have a little bit of work to do on the Naval Deep pieces. This is Matt Doughty's sort of spin-off character. And, uh, but in any case, the Sea of Daggers campaign is uh, still happening. We are still absolutely going to beat our first estimated ship date of December 2024. I think we're looking at probably, probably early summer to be conservative. I think this is, Cray will make his debut early summer. Uh, I have a really fantastic AFOTM version of a Sea of Daggers character that's going to make an appearance in the club later on. And uh, just generally, I am dying to get my hands on these figures. I want these to be a reality as soon as possible. I'm super excited about it. And speaking of the club, I think we've talked about it before, but I just want to reiterate this for any new listeners or people who might have missed the information. Um, the $30 tier on Patreon and the $50 tier on Patreon are no longer being offered. So if you have one of those tiers, you are grandfathered in, you are considered a legacy patron, and you can keep that tier for as long as you like, and I will honor the arrangement with those tiers. Uh, but I am no longer accepting any new enrollees to the Patreon AFOTM club. Uh, people are still welcome to join at $5, and you will still get access to the store. But instead of trying to bring more people into the Patreon at those higher tiers, I'm going to direct that traffic to the store where people will be able to order whatever extra figures there are in a given month. Now, those who have been paying close attention, you've noticed that not every figure has a second chance available to them. Uh, that is just how this club is going to operate from now on. So it pays to be diligent, it pays to be a patron, and just kind of follow closely when these things go up on pre-order. And, um, you know, uh, I don't think anybody's going to be left out in the cold as long as you're a patron. But I do think if you're just a casual customer out there in the ether and you don't follow along too closely, 
there is potential for you to miss some of the club figures if you're not an enrollee. And uh, I think that's as reasonable as a operation that I can sort of manage, given the uh, given just the the general <laughs> cost of doing business. But uh, with that said, I'm dying to get this first club bundle out there. Uh, we're going to have a little bit of extra, so I think anybody at the $5 tier should be covered. Um, I think it's going to blow your minds, and there are some really fascinating extras built into this that I think are really going to make people smile. But, um, yeah, we are we're a couple weeks away from that first parcel arriving, and I think that's going to be great. Oh, I, my point in saying all this is, if you happen to be at a $30 or $50 tier on Patreon stay there if you if you opt out you cannot get back in you have something that is incredibly precious and you should guard that with your life um this is just you know there's going to always be changes to these sorts of things and uh this is how we are moving forward into 2024 and beyond i think at a certain point as i spoke of earlier i may no longer accept any uh, higher tiers through the Patreon platform at all. Everybody will be a $5 patron and then you will go to the store to purchase accordingly. But that's quite some time down the road, so nothing to worry about there. And uh, like I said, if you're already a $30 or $50 patron, nothing changes. You don't have to worry about anything. Just make sure your credit card info is up to date because once you're out, there's no getting back in. So uh, thank you. Let us get to some questions. Okay, first question here comes from concept artist to the stars, Ian Amling. He has this to say. My question, are you exploring any new media for your properties? Digitizing card slicers, making it a mobile game like Hearthstone, or animated the Sea of Daggers tale, stuff like that. Happy New Year, my friend. Happy New Year to you two as well. Um, very, very sort of uh, psychic timing with this question. <laughs> um, I've, I've said many times before that I am sort of a lucid dreamer. And more than that, I, I can sort of visit places that are consistent when I dream about them. There is like architecture, there are, there's a layout, there's a map, there's buildings, and it is more or less in the same position every time I go to it in these dreams. Um, and I posted maybe about a month ago this map that I had sort of woken up early in the morning and scribbled out based on uh, this very vivid dream I had about this, this uh, city, more or less. And... I kept dreaming about this cityscape and, and the buildings and the places and, and where they are and what they mean. And so last night I had this kind of breakthrough because I, I came to understand what this map is. This is not necessarily um, a place I have to go to, but rather it is the map of a video game. And last night in my dream I played this video game all night long. I, I did bo boss battles. I uh, went on side quests. I, the, the map of this place was alive with all these different features 
and quests and characters. And sure enough, when I got up, I printed out this sketch that I had done of this map. It's kind of like a rectangle shape. And I took a, a map from an old NES game, one that I love very much and that I would actually tailor a Night of the Slice game after. And by simply rotating the map of this NES game to be vertical rather than horizontal, it fit almost perfectly the map that I had drawn out. So you can draw any number of inferences from this. Probably just I'd been thinking so much about this game that I really like and the game map, and it was sort of, you know, embedded in my psyche. And then a population of that map kind of happened just through my subconscious. But in any case, I have seen this manifestation of a Knights of the Slice video game. So uh, amongst many different things I had to do this morning, I've been kind of tinkering with this map. I laid a grid over it. It lines up perfectly, and I've started to sort of populate it and build it out a little bit more. But I do now have a very clear picture of what a... Knights of the Slice video game would be. It would be largely an 8-bit effort. Uh, it is possibly something that could be utilized in a readily available game engine like RPG Maker. So if I have any Squires of the Slice with a lot of experience in something like RPG Maker, I would love to have a side conversation with you. So th for the first time in a long time, I feel like the universe has unlocked uh, the exact path I'm supposed to take in order to put out a very minimal, very cheap, uh, but comprehensive sort of 8-bit style video game. I can see it clear as day. It has been a very vivid experience for me. Um, so I'm going to continue to noodle that along. Uh, in regards to digitizing card slicers, making a mobile game, um, I like that idea. I think more pressing for me is having an app that does basic limb swapping, and it's kind of like a create a night drawing and painting app, more or less. You have templates and you can color them. That would be super helpful for me to um, have as a designing tool. I have already laid out the skeleton of what that would look like, a, a basic sort of, you know, chart in which artwork would need to be filled in and functionality would have to be built around it. Uh, that is a luxury that I'm, I'm you know, not going to be able to undertake myself because it is a, it is a, you know, probably five grand, if not 10 grand expenditure to get one or two programmers to kind of click all that stuff together for me. Um, I, I think that the ultimate answer is, you know, this is a DIY punk operation. So if there are going to be any meaningful steps towards something ambitious like a digitization of the Card Slicers game, that has to be through a licensing deal with a bigger company that has the resources to do it and is going to pay me a licensing fee, you know, uh, for the right to my characters and, and my game engine. Um, given that we are in this sort of no longer in the 0% interest rate frame of late capital uh, in the early 21st century, uh, those prospects are, are, don't really exist out there. I think, if anything, for artists, the ground is going to become more and more shrinking. Um, 
So I think largely I have to kind of keep plugging away, just selling toys and, and focusing on those things. When it is fun for me, I will dip into the sort of planning and the art stages of this NES style game. Uh, but, you know, those opportunities are not going to be dictated by me. Those are going to have to be outside companies come to me with the idea that they want to exploit the IP. And frankly, I, I don't know if I will ever be of the size that warrants interest from a company like that. Uh, I think also we've seen very bad examples of apps based on toy properties that have stalled out or never delivered. I, I, you know, I'm not as knowledgeable and I don't mean to be sort of pointing fingers here, but I know that the Four Horsemen started fundraising for an app. I have no idea if that ever shipped or not. Um, I wasn't a backer for that campaign. I know there's also a Acid Rain game that was supposed to come out. Again, I, you know, I haven't done any research. I have no idea if it ever did ship. But there tends to be like a lot of noise and thunder made about toy properties that, that sort of cross that hurdle into app development. And then more often than not, nothing ever ships, nothing launches. And I don't want that to be the legacy of that's the slice, you know, by any means. So ultimately, all these things are decisions that somebody else has to make and approach me. It's nothing that I can sort of undertake in any meaningful sense, but a very good question and thank you for it. Next question here from Bren Lawson. Translucent Ninjas, Material Boys, do you think we can get some awesome building potentials? I love ninjas. Thank you, Bren. I also love ninjas. Um, I do have plans that I would like to accomplish for a duo of ninjas in this year, in this calendar year. Uh, I would say that the ninja sales have not been phenomenal. They've been okay. Uh, it is a very old tool at this point, and I think people's interests lie elsewhere. Uh, this year we saw three different ninjas, all with sort of uh, gold motif. They did okay. I believe all three are still in stock currently. So, um, you know, ninjas are going to be a very select and a very limited release when they do happen. I'll probably do this duo I have in mind this year, and then likely it'll kind of rest, uh, you know, for 12, 18 months. Um, you know, this is the fate of figures once they are no longer new, and uh, it shouldn't, you know, just kind of the nature of doing business. But I would love to see a resurgence of ninja appreciation. Uh, so far, we are falling slightly short of that. Next question from Chris Wynn. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Omake Toys. Omake Toys are bonus toys that would come in candy packages. I was wondering, do you know the process and cost of making one? Um, so there's a very interesting sort of, there, there are obviously candy toys and candy kits, and sometimes those can be referred to as Omake Toys for sure. But um, specifically when I think of Omake Toys, I think of like store giveaways and little unpainted bonus figures. Um, there would often be bundles of these. You would get like a little tiny articulated robot wrapped around a bar of deodorant or something like that. And uh, I think they're great. They're really wonderful. Um, the sort of financials of doing an omake toy is you're making such huge margin on the actual product. You know, your, uh, your can of uh, tomato soup, your packet of ramen, whatever the case may be, such huge margin on that, that the omake is sort of a, a marketing spend, a loss leader. It's not something that can sort of generate run revenue in and of itself. 
Um, I have a small collection of different ones that I've gotten from Japan. Some very cool robots. I even have an electroplated robot with a clear chest that was just a free giveaway. It's really, it's quite mind-blowing. But if you um, are familiar with these or have collected any, you know that the quality of plastic is pretty subpar. It, usually they're using POP or PP, polypropylene mixture, and uh, it has a sort of waxy or soapy feel to it. It's not necessarily a high-quality plastic. Um, they're not intended for a lot of play, and, you know, the, the plastic can degrade over time. While this concept is not quite the same as an omake toy, as I mentioned earlier, I am going to be doing free giveaways with purchases on the web store. Um, so that's kind of my own version of an omake, a, a special bonus gift to uh, those people that frequent uh, my wares. Next question from Thomas Bucci. Uh, was the film Lady Battle Cop any inspiration for the Cybug head design? Uh, I have to admit, in looking this up, I've never seen that film. Uh, I've probably seen the character floating around, uh, but it's not something I'm familiar with and was not an influence for the design of the Cybug. For the Cybug, I was just simply trying to iterate on the bug helmet idea, but have a slightly more feminine look to it. Um, and I think it accomplishes that really well. And when you see the reveal video, it'll make a lot more sense, all these different concepts that we're sort of going into it. Next up, a question from Lance Tomimoto. Do you think the Swordmaster Sword Point was too aggressive and that you overcorrected on the Device Ninja and maybe the Old Knight? Would you change any of them now looking back? Um, I would actually prefer my weapons are more like the Swordmaster Sword, which is rigid plastic. It's a, it's a PP material or an ABS material, and it can sort of prick your hand. It's not going to draw blood, but it can be uncomfortable to dig your hand into a box of them, for sure. Um, by comparison, the Device Ninja Sword and the Old Knight Sword are made out of PVC, and they have to be shot at the same temperature as the base figure, which is about 85 degrees. And so, there is a softness to them, there is some bend, uh, they often have to be shipped on something flat to maintain their shape. Uh, I would prefer all weapons were slightly more dangerous, right? We're all adults here, These are, this is not a toy line made for kids, and so I prefer to have a little more realism. However, it does not always make sense to have a separate mold shot in PP as opposed to PVC plastic. Uh, sometimes it is not cost-effective to do that. So, more often than not, you are putting the sword in the same cavity as the body, and like I said, it has to be shot at the same temperature, at the same sort of uh, bendiness of plastic as the rest of the figure. It's not something that can always be soloed out, as it were. Um, so, you know, I'm fine with how everything has gone so far. I'm content with the figures I've done. My personal preference is always for stiffer weapons, but uh, it doesn't always make sense financially to do that. Sometimes those terms are dictated to me rather than vice versa. So that's, uh, I think, where I stand on that. The final word also, this just came to me, but no one is stuck using any accessories they don't particularly care for. We're now at the point with Knights of the Slice where there are probably a hundred separate accessories. Uh, if you don't prefer the old knight sword, Swap it out for the Crow Mega Sword. Swap it out for the Swordmaster Sword. We have a whole new slew of accessories coming with the Sea of Daggers that are going to 
revitalize the sword game for sure. So I would just say, if you don't love it personally, you don't have to keep the, uh, the sword it comes with. I think that's pretty fair. Next up, we got a question from Chuck Waterman. I just discovered Microman on an eBay sojourn, and I think I was missing a piece to understanding your toy influences. I could be wrong. The vehicles and figure cases remind me of your vehicles and cases in an awesome way, and they love translucent and shiny toys too. My question is, what toy lines are the main sources of influence for you, or do you just love the most, uh, love most of them? Uh, I'm especially, especially unknowledgeable about foreign toy lines. Uh, I got into sweet designer toys like 3A and Acid Rain as an army officer when I had cash to burn around 2013 and on. Um, you know, I, I think I tend to say that like I'm influenced by everything I, I come in contact with. Um, but there is certainly no des denying that uh, Microman, especially the sort of Japanese variety, um, made a huge imprint on me and my decision-making as a modern-day uh, toy maker. I, I don't think anybody who knows their toy history can escape the gigantic shadow of what Takara did. Uh, particularly if you want to draw the sort of origin points of Diclone and Microman and Henshin Cyborg and how those essentially became uh, the majority of you know, the, the sort of U.S. toy lines through uh, repackaging like Transformers. So I think it would be a bit silly to, like, pretend that, uh, you know, I'm not aping the styles of those Takara designers um, in what I do because absolutely, like, I'm standing in the shadow of, of those giants. What's even more interesting is that you can trace an origin point to the designers of Micronauts. Uh, and, sorry, Microman, if we're talking about the Japanese uh, variety. Um, the Osaka Japanese Expo in 1970. Uh, most of these designers attended that show. This was a huge world exhibit. And amongst the different artists that were on display there, Kishu Kurakawa, I know I was going to butcher that, there was no hope, um, with his sort of crazy architecture designs, uh, uh, the DNA of... Microman was all baked into that show in the 1970s. And my guess is that these designers were probably uh, young kids or in their teens. And then you get to the late 70s, early 80s, they now work at a toy company. And this design aesthetic is infused into everything they do. And, and by virtue of the importation of Transformers, uh, so too was the sort of U.S. audience influenced by it. I would also say that equally important to me as a present-day designer is to not gain too much inspiration from toy lines, right? I look at things like uh, high fashion, um, you know, crazy out there designers, uh, you know, Craig Green for Adidas, Albert Albas, especially during his H&M run, my God, come on, Steve McQueen. Like, there are, uh, sorry, Alexander McQueen, not Steve McQueen. There's a couple of Steve McQueens you could pick from, and it's neither of them. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, you can become way too pigeonholed just only referencing toy history. It's much more exciting to look at a beautiful abstract painting 
think about how that makes you feel, and then translate that into a color scheme on a toy. I find those experiences are much more rewarding than just sort of, you know, giving a wink and a nod to something, you know, previous play thing of mine. Since you mentioned that you are going down rabbit holes and you have purchased 3A in an acid rain in the past, I would highly recommend you spend some time going down the rabbit hole of Makoto Kobayashi and the Mach K line, Machine Krieger, M-A dot K. Uh, that is where you will find the direct influences for Acid Rain and 3A. It all goes back to the work of that artist. Um, so I highly recommend that. I, I, you know, I sort of envy you in many respects. There's so much to discover when it comes to Japanese toy makers of the 70s and 80s, and I think it's really worthwhile uh, you know, it, it's good to sink some, uh, sink some stat points into that. Next up from Gordon McKinnon Hall, is there any chance of future installments of the Jagged Age manga fleshing out the story around Sea of Daggers? Um, I sure hope so. Now, for those keeping track, it took about nine months to, I mean, almost a year, honestly, um, to do the first book of the Jagged Age manga. Uh, I do have a new artist lined up. We are hopefully embarking on the second book on the 1st of February, fingers crossed, with the idea that I can have this new artist working on book two, hopefully have Renoso working on book three, and keep the story going. Uh, I don't know if timing is going to work out like that. Um, you know, I expected, I fully expected to have the Jagged Age manga out a few months after I wrote it, and clearly it took almost a year to do that. So um, it's extremely, extremely difficult to do these books with zero budget and sort of dependence on a, you know, a single artist. Um, I, I wish many times that uh, I was more proficient at comic book making and could do something justice, but in this case, this story is too important to be handled by my artistic ability, it needs to be in collaboration with very well-established artists, such as Renosa, who did a fantastic job on the book one. Um, it's also worth noting, so timing-wise for Cray, we have seen him at level one, which is that Natalie Kuramoto uh, sort of prequel book, Cray which uh, I think the digital version is still in the store. The physical copy's long been sold out. Um, uh, so that's Cray at level one. I have released, I believe, two versions of Cray, maybe three versions of Cray, two versions of Cray at level 10 and level 20. So I sort of imagine Cray at the start of the Jagged Age manga to be at about level 30. And, uh, you know, we will shortly meet Cray at level 40, and then I sort of imagine Cray at the start of Sea of Daggers is at level 50. He's about halfway in the power index of a character in his world. So the Cray of Sea of Daggers is actually really starting to become established as a combatant, as a martial artist, as a sharpshooter, as a swordsman. He's not the best by any means, but... Going off of how weak and feeble he was in the prequel book, uh, he has really made strides to sort of, uh, you know, becoming a much more dangerous uh, contender. Um, 
I do think that the story could be bridged relatively easily between where I want to take the Jagged Age manga to the start of Sea of Daggers, uh, but that would be probably book four. I have books two and three plotted out, more or less. You guys have read book one. Um, I think by book four, we could potentially be in Sea of Daggers storytelling. However, um, I don't know that the manga is going to come out before the Sea of Daggers figures come out. So likely, you're going to get little bits of story, maybe pieces of splash art to kind of tell the, uh, the basic framework of Sea of Daggers. And then hopefully I can get to a more, you know, illustrious uh, breakdown of that overarching story after I get the next two uh, comic book pages out of the way, comic book stories out of the way. While we are on the topic of the Jagged Age manga, thank you to everybody who pre-ordered. I only have less than 10 copies left, and I am not reprinting this comic. What I will probably do is when I have issue two, I will reprint the prequel comic, I will reprint issue number one, and I will reprint issue number two as a physical three-story book, essentially. Uh, I also, I gotta be honest with you, I don't like the manga format. I think it's too small. I think Renosa's art is too grand, and I will be moving the second printing to the larger, more traditional American-style comic book, because I just don't feel like you're seeing all the detail that Renosa put into it, so... That's why I also want to reprint the original. But if you have the original manga size one, that's going to be a collector's item. And like I said, I only have nine more left in stock. Once that's gone, that's it. No more. Next question from Thomas Giante. Do you think the recent re-releases of the 90s TMNT toys are using the same molds from 30 years ago? Do companies really hold on to these and keep them maintained in a way that they could be used again? I've thought about this too, and I think that my gut feeling, without knowing how Playmates does anything, is maybe, maybe they're original. If there is a sort of chain of custody that is unbroken, wherein Playmates essentially own the factory that made the original TMNT figures and have managed to keep them busy enough for 30 years that they haven't really taken on other clients or had much focus outside of that, I could imagine the tooling uh, department and the mold people holding on to everything. If you've, uh, I guess probably not a lot of people have done this, but if you go to factories and you go to the tooling department, they usually have like just a graveyard of tools, these big steel cavities just laying out on pallets, sometimes, you know, in inside, sometimes outside. Um, so it's tough to say, I, you know, I don't think any of the factories I've ever worked with would hold on to a tool for 30 years. I think they would probably recycle that steel and reuse it for new tools. But again, if your client is consistently ordering things, um, there's a little bit more of a reason to hold on to that stuff. Theoretically, there's nothing preventing a tool that's 30 years old and well-maintained and kept outside of the elements. There's nothing that would really prevent that from still functioning 30 years later. It is. A block of steel after all it, it's pretty well uh, you know about as close to a permanent <laughs> installation as you can have the other thing is uh, and many people may not realize this but back in the 80s and probably even somewhat into the 90s certainly in the 70s um, it was so cheap to manufacture this stuff 
that oftentimes there was not one set of tooling for a single character, especially if you're doing the volume of TMNT in its heyday. They had to churn those figures out pronto. So it would not be unreasonable for them to have two or three of the same steel tool for the same character so that they can just sort of shoot these puppies out at triple the speed. Um, so in those cases, you have like some tooling being sold to other countries. Like we have Fun School in India. Those are Hasbro molds that were probably sold off to them. Uh, you know, there, there may be multiple versions of the same character in terms of tools that exist out in the world. And so maybe all three of the original Bebop and Rocksteady tools are no longer here, but they might have one that they use for foreign markets or things like that. So, you know, it's kind of a nebulous thing, and I, I wouldn't want to say conclusively one way or the other. Um, you know, I also think one more final factor here. The re-releases are being sold at Walmart and Target, so the volume is so large on those orders, it's probably not terribly expensive to build that price into the runs that they're doing. They're probably doing 100,000 run, piece runs, right? So doing new tooling that's just a duplication of the old figure, that's not out of the realm of financial feasibility uh, by any stretch either. So, you know, I, I guess my bottom line is I don't know. I think there's probably a possibility these are original tools, but, you know, I, th I think my gut instinct is probably not. Next up, we got a guy claiming to be the guitarist from Zed Star 7, named Brendan McGrath, and he's got this question. I never really got into the many based combat and grinding slash leveling nature of JRPGs, but my cousin introduced me to Final Fantasy VI, which was called Final Fantasy III back then, everybody knows that, during the SNES days, and his enthusiasm for it combined with the style and story brought me in to stay. What are your favorite things about FF6? Uh, I think I had mentioned I, I'm replaying this game on mobile because I am the least motivated person to get on an exercise bike, and this is one of the only ways I can coax myself to have any physical exertion during the day, is to put on a podcast with my uh, ear pods on and play a, <laughs> play a handheld mobile game while there is a screen in front of me showing a beautiful scenic route. Uh, this is, I, I need like all forms of stimulation in order to commit myself to doing any level of exercise. So I've been replaying it and I have started replaying Final Fantasy VI many times and never, it never stuck, right? Because it does take a while to warm up. The, the original Narsh stuff, when you're just Terra and uh, Vix and Biggs, it's very, it takes a long time to get through that, right? And it, you're kind of plodding along. And you start to meet other characters and it starts to pick up the pace, but really, uh, you know, the game doesn't really kick into full tilt until you have Shadow on your team for the first time, you have Cayenne, you have Celeste, you know, you start to get that, that first little core group. And then once you get the airship, the game blossoms into this incredible thing. So in previous revisits, I, I really did not spend much time playing the game, but now I'm just at the point where I got the airship and I, I can go wherever I please. And I am really truly re-appreciating and re-enjoying everything about this game. The fact that this game has never been adapted 
is a travesty. This is the perfect sort of multi-season storytelling. You know, the end of season one would be, the, you know, the the battle that splits the world into ruin. Um, there's just... It's, it's an immaculate piece of work. It's not even a video game. It is, you know, it is a piece of cinema. It is the first time that characters were depicted in a grandiose cinematic way. You know, think of the opera scene. Think of... It, it's just endless. It is one of the most thoughtful, evocative, funny... Uh, pieces of work that's out there. I would also like to point to the espers and the use of magicite and their sort of summoning animations. That stuff is just like eye candy. It is is so satisfying to, you know, call in this big hulking beast and the screen explodes and then, you know, you're not sure if your party's going to survive much longer, but you hear that snap and then the enemy fades away into purple. It's just, it's all brilliant. Every aspect, every sensory output on that game is pitch perfect. Every sound, every menu, every item description, it all serves this beautiful monolith. And I could spend another three hours talking about Final Fantasy VI. I will not. Um, But that is to say, much like Microman, I am sort of a, a modern artist living in the shadow of Final Fantasy VI. I, do, I make no apologies for that. There will be, of course, homages along the way to these characters, as there already have been. Um, it is just one of the most perfect pieces of media ever created. I really do hope it gets its due someday. You know, I was, I was sort of... I had to put on something brain-dead that I could kind of type away on my computer and have on the TV screen uh, yesterday. And so I put on Pokemon Concierge. And it's a beautiful piece of stop-motion animation. Storytelling is, you know, it's not great. It's for kids, right? Uh, But that sort of approach to Final Fantasy VI would be an amazing, amazing series. You know, Uh, I think also, I know that there is a Legend of Zelda movie that's coming out in the same vein as Mario, I think that actually that would be a fantastic stop-motion animation project. Um, But I think likely they're just going to sort of go the same CG route as uh, the Mario movie, and why wouldn't they? That's, you know, it's been a big hit for them. But in any case, uh, yeah, I love everything about that game. And uh, if people haven't played it, I I definitely implore them to play it, and play it as soon as possible, because it... uh, it takes a while to get into it, but once you're there, uh, it's incredible. And, and the amount of surprises I'm rediscovering are endless. Well, I believe that's all the news that's fit to print. Nothing wrong with a short episode every now and then. Before I sign off, I'm going to leave you with a song to play us out. This is the very first song that I ever uploaded to SoundCloud. By the way, if you like our music, you can check out, uh, what is it, soundcloud.com slash zstar7. This was uploaded two years ago. Feels like longer. But in any case, uh, hopefully you can hear the evolution of the sound because I had no fucking idea what I was doing with this first song. I barely have an idea now. I really, truly had no idea back then. So enjoy Never Going Home, 
from Z-Star 7. Thank you.